Once upon a morning, there was a freshly brewed McCafe coffee. It was made with 100% Arabica beans, yet something was missing. Fear not, in the distance, a sausage McMuffin with egg rides toward the sunrise in quest for breakfast. The perfect pair met at McDonald's, and mornings were happy forever after. Right now, get a $1 small coffee and a $2 sausage McMuffin with egg from the $1-2-3 menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. The music fades. Your local announcer's voice superimposes itself over the theme music, just as my voice did when I started speaking. Your opening announcement would sound like this. Tonight, the Blank Company presents another of the exciting adventures in the life of... Doc Savage. Amateur detective. Soldier of fortune, champion of lost causes, who now comes to his loyal friends through radio with more of his baffling and intriguing mysteries. We invite you to follow in the footsteps of Doc Savage. We invite you, too, to try blank. At this point, your announcer will describe your product, store, or service, followed by 40 words of selling copy. The music fades, and at this point in the program each week, your local announcer presents a minute and a half of your selling copy. However, as is customary on the premier performance of network shows, let's listen to the following suggested personal message to be read on the opening program by your local announcer or a chief executive of your company. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight is a great one in the career of the blank company. For tonight, we present for the first time the most celebrated adventure detective of fiction and the screen. Doc Savage. Weird scenes inside the gold mine. Who will now be brought to you, our good friends and his loyal friends, through radio. We have developed this program for your entertainment, to make your more pleasant, and to circle a weekly date on your calendar to get together with the blank company. The adventures of Doc Savage come to you directly from just off Times Square in New York City where every for your entertainment, we will assemble a sparkling cast of dramatic stars to bring you the very best, the most brilliant, just as we of the Blank Company always bring you the best in Blank products. Be sure to tune in every when Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine will thrill you again with another complete, pulse-pounding story in his career of breathtaking adventure. Such is the program that we have arranged especially for you, and we of the Blank Company sincerely hope that Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine brings you as much pleasure each week as it gives us in presenting him to you. And now, on with the show. Good evening. We are knee deep in the 
fourth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, West Virginia-born Roger Tony Anthony Petito made a name for himself when he moved to Italy and starred in the Stranger series, presenting a uniquely sleazy, sneaky, and quite amoral antihero, fairly far removed from the likes of Clint Eastwood, Johnny Garco, Franco Nero, William Berger, or even Lee Van Cleef. Breaking ties with original director Luigi Vanzi, Anthony came to even greater prominence in more entertaining films in partnership with Ferdinando Baldi for the Ringo Star Ing Blind Man, the genre blending Get Mean, and the two films that kickstarted the short lived early 80s 3D cinema revival, Coming At You and the Indiana Jones S Treasure of the Four Crowns. So join us tonight as we take the last train to Clarksburg and talk the brief but fascinating career of Tony Anthony, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Uh, I'm Doc Savage, and with me is my co host, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Doc. <laughs> you sound like you're on a speakerphone tonight. Do I? Yeah. Oh, that sounds better. You were at a distance before. Yeah. I was like, oh, fading away into the oh, distance. That yeah, that's fine. Uh, I don't know what happened. <laughs> so, I, I, what's I'm up? Glad. Yeah, I'm glad Mercury's out of retrograde. That's good. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, we've had too many. Is there any difference? I don't know. <laughs> you know, every time somebody, a friend of mine, tells me like, "Oh yeah, Mars or Mercury's in retrograde or Saturn's in you know whatever," I'm like, "Oh my god, it's it's always a horrible time for everybody I know." So, <laughs> you know, believe it or not, believe it. All I can tell you is that's when everybody brings it up. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, you know. It's one of those things that are in the back of your mind when things go fucking rotten. And then, uh, you know, I was I was kind of ill in and out. And I was like, maybe that's the reason, man. So, like, I should be, like, doing Gene Kelly dancing or something like that. You know? <laughs> but not Fred quite. <laughs> Fred Astaire. I like Gene Kelly. Hey, um, you know... We're not talking about those guys at this point. I mean, we can do that someday if you want, but Gene Kelly always felt a little bit like, what do you want to call it, uh, the Midwestern version, I guess, of Fred Astaire. He wasn't as fancy. He was more – he wasn't like flat-footed, obviously. He was a famous dancer, but uh, it felt like he was more four on the floor, if you know what I'm saying, uh, musician terms. Uh, it was very straightforward, and he was less – light on his feet, less creative, less obsessive than Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire was fucking amazing. I mean, a lot of people hated working with him because he was crazy. I always felt there was a dark side to Gene Kelly. I always felt there was something we didn't know. Very possible. Maybe that's why I was drawn to him. Very possible. So what what else is going on in my life? Uh, So the monkeys last night. So how was that? I understand that uh, Nesmith didn't show, but he phoned in, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Actually, well, Nesmith is a bit of a recluse, and he made it known for the 50th anniversary tour. He wasn't going to join uh, Mickey and Peter. And, uh, okay, whatever. And, um, you know, three days earlier, their new album comes out, and it's it's like racing up the charts. Good for them. It's actually really good. I think it's really uh, as a CD. And uh, so 
I said, well, it's New York. Anything can happen. So we had an appearance by uh, the Fountains, a guy from Fountains of Wayne who actually co-wrote some tracks and produced the album with the Dolphins. And uh, I forgot his name. Yeah. And uh, so he played played a couple of tunes with them. And so um, they actually changed up the set list and what they've been doing in the last couple of shows. So they came and said, well, this is usually Mike's song. So what we're going to do is they bring out a laptop, and they had this rare screen uh, in the back showing clips from the monkeys during the whole show, which is kind of fun. And it makes me want to look at it again because it seems much more absurd. Now that I'm older, I think I think it looks much more, uh, much more psychic. So anyway, there he appeared. Mike Nesmith Skypes in and plays a song with them. And for a second, I was thinking, oh, maybe this is all pre-recorded, and it's just a gimmick thing. Right. No, he was acknowledging we were in the ark, and he was feeding back to the audience, so it was definitely live from wherever he was. And it was a, it was a very unusual thing that happened. Actually, uh, the Times picked up the story, and uh, they got some fan shot video, and actually, on my Facebook page, I got a better video and audio, too, using my new cell. I was like, you should have called me. Um, <laughs> there were a couple of highlights in the show. You know, actually, it wasn't your typical nostalgia thing. I thought Mickey Dolan sounded great. Peter's unusual, eclectic fellow. Uh, I think we always thought it was Nesmith. Maybe, maybe it's more Peter. It's the odd one. Anyway, uh, Mickey sounded great. Uh, the new songs were pretty good, uh, but they did the Porpoise song, Head, uh, <laughs> which which I really really liked that, and uh, it kind of came out really good. So I was pleased, and uh, drank a lot of beer beforehand. That always helps, and uh, and I like going to a show, coming out of it feeling. Like a kid, because everybody there was 80 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't I don't want to denigrate any Monkees fans. Yeah, uh, the, the, the audience definitely skewered, I guess they grew up with them, you know, and uh, these, from the looks of things, these people were probably teenagers along with them. So we're looking at I don't know, people 20 years older than me. <laughs> so, but everybody seemed to enjoy it. It was a good show, good show. And uh, and uh, that was my weekly concert going adventure. How are you? How are you doing? All right. And I will tell you that I did attempt to revisit the Monkeys TV show uh, not that long ago, maybe about a year back. And yes, it is kind of trippy in some respects, but it feels very. I really don't like television of that era, U.S. television of that era. It's, it's got this Albert Zug Smith sort of, you know, the Munsters slash uh, Green Acres slash Gilligan's Island sort of feel. And there is a lot of that in there. They were trying to be a little more anarchic. In some respects, it's almost looking forward to stuff like The Young Ones, but uh, within the bounds of what was acceptable to middle America with really, really bad, corny, like Mr. Ed-type humor. Uh, so 
it was trying to – obviously the band was fake, and they were trying to ape the success of not only the Beatles, but in specific Hard Day's Night, the movie. Uh, and you can see that, and there is stuff to be appreciated there. And you can also see how the band themselves was heading towards Head, you know, the, the bizarro Head film that they did uh, with Frank Zappa and whoever the hell else. Uh, but it's not there yet, obviously, because it's not skewed towards that sort of a hippie audience yet. This is still supposed to be on TV for you know Midwesterners to watch. So – I did. I found it lacking, but you may enjoy it having not seen it for so long. And if your taste for that era of television are more forgiving than mine, which are not very forgiving at all, I deal with the seventies. Well, no, yeah, you know there were a couple of things I watched. A couple of things I grew up on. You know, some of the things I was like really young, you know, but I was right. aware of. I remember that show. Uh, and I, I, I was. I liked the songs. You know, and I like the I like some of the stuff they put out, and I wasn't quite sure what was going on with that show because, but seeing the the scenes rear projected, I'm thinking, oh, there's there was some definitely uh, some subliminal stuff going on here. So I'm like, I oh, want to yeah. take a look at this again. You know, uh, and you know, I like I like because they even brought it up last night live. I like the fact that, you know, they, these guys were hired to do a gig. You know, they were musician actors, actor musicians, whatever. Right. And, you know, they were, the, the songs were written, and they go into the studio. They had to sing them, and they used, like, a studio guys. And they're doing this, you know, they're just cranking this stuff out. And they finally said, you know what, we could play. And they owned their chops, and then they didn't let them play. But then they suddenly had a tour. Right. And so they said, well, shit, all right. You can play and sing on your own album and write most of it. And uh, next thing you know, from headquarters on. You know, right. But, of course, I think subversively, the network, which was NBC, said, like, a huge fuck you to them. It's like, oh, you want to do that? <laughs> you know? And I, I think they stopped supporting them. And Yes. Uh which is a shame because their stuff started to get really interesting around '68, and then we got ahead. So, you know, so uh, you know, ups and downs and, and deaths and shit like that. But uh, it's it's curious where this where this new CD goes. Um, I mean, it's getting getting raves, and uh, you know, I like that. I like uh, I like it if it's something I listen to and I read something and I listen to it and I get so disappointed. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, you know what? Like a sound bite here and there. I won't even go listen to a whole song. But with this, I, I'm seeing some of my musician friends saying, you know what? I bought this too. I really like it. You're right. And I said, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how this happened. There is a strange so, thing going on lately where bands that have been around forever – I mean, you know, pumping out stuff through the 80s and saw crap, and the 90s made they disappear for 10 years. But all of a sudden, bands, I don't know if it's like they're, they, they see it as their last album, and they finally want to, you know, get what they had to get out on record all these years and do it. Uh, but we had previously spoken to, actually, you spoke to it. I heard it after the show, really. 
uh, Bowie's The Next Day, which was really kind of his magnum opus since uh, the days of Heroes and Lodger. Uh, it, it really did harken back to that. I was totally amazed at what a strong album that was. Uh, I haven't heard Black Star, but I can't imagine it would live up to the potential or or the um, the actual realization of you know how much he dug back into his better days with that second to last album. Uh, then Iggy Pop does the same fucking thing on post-pop depression, going right back to the days of the idiot, which was shocking because he's been putting out crap for years now. Uh, I think the last good song he put out was Dog Food. What was that 1981? <laughs> and then on top of this, Santana 4 comes out. Now, I picked up the guitar because of Carl Santana. You can pretty much hear it in a lot of the stuff that I play. Um, but I was never really that impressed with the Neil Sean iteration of the band. You know, the, this the three era. Uh, it was more of the earlier stuff, and then stuff he did later. You know, Moonflower, Lotus, going on and on, Freedom. You know, whatever, Caravanserai. Um, when you, if if you really like that era, though, if you really are into three. It's surprising because they pretty much brought it right back to those days, and he did bring in you know Michael Shreve and Michael Caravallo and you know Sean's on there. There's for me there's a little bit too much of Sean playing, but that was the problem with three. Uh, Shreve is not like doing his crazy Keith Moon meets the guy from the H.P. Lovecraft the band type drumming, but you know he wasn't doing that on three either. Um, there's a little bit too much emphasis on the keyboardy end of things, but that was the problem with three. So if you liked Santana three, you'll probably really, really be surprised by Santana four. It's the best thing he's done in ages in terms of that. It's in terms of going back retro. Uh, but mm -hmm. there's not enough of Carlos playing on it for my tastes. There is, but it's a little bit too much of a band effort. So there is disappointment there. But again, three albums that I was not expecting really anything of. That really did shock me. So I'm not surprised to hear that there's another one of these bands that's been floating around. You know, okay, it's the Monkees, but you know, floating around since the '60s, and all of a sudden here they are putting out something that's like, oh wow, where'd that come from? Because <laughs> it's happening. There's something in the air or something. Well, yeah, that that's the whole thing. And I think uh, uh, just to spew a final word on this Monkees thing, uh, bring it full circle. I think what I'm hearing is myself when I listen to some of the really strong tracks, and this is. Oh, wow, where did that come from? I mean, how do you get a 70-plus guy to sing like he's 17 again? And, I mean, it's like he's really trying to really push it. And it's mm -hmm. like, this is good. Now, yeah. if only some, some, some other bands would follow suit and not be <laughs> lazy, um, this could be a really good thing. Like I said, there's way too many bands that settle for uh, the airplane in the 80s, you know, that kind of a thing, and just put out crap. Uh, and that's what I've come to expect. That's why I don't even pay attention when older bands put stuff out anymore. But, yeah, there's, it, there's been something in the air lately. I don't know what's going on, but people are really giving it their all and getting back to the old magic to one extent or another, to an impressive degree. So, uh, anyway, so tonight we're here to talk so, about Tony. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, we're here to talk about Tony Anthony. Uh, <laughs> uh, he is a strange, strange fellow. Um, let's see. How can we put this? All right. First off, uh, like I mentioned, he was born uh, Roger Petito. Uh, back in the late 30s, believe it or not. He's older than he looks. Um, and he was raised down in Clarksburg, Virginia. That's why I made that last train to Clarksburg joke, uh, which just so happened to fall in the same week you would see the monkeys. Um Basically, he was 
you know, I would imagine he was a hippie or something. He was down there producing, like, student film sort of things with his buddies, never really making anything of himself. And all of a sudden, he moved over to Italy, like a lot of people did at that time, uh, because I guess there was a lot of work there. I know there was a lot of work for expatriates, people that were on the blacklist, things like that, you know, fallen celebrities. Uh, but some smaller people, too, you know, like Clint Eastwood went over there. Before that, he was on, what was he, Gunsmoke or something? He was like, nobody. Uh, and then he went over there and became a major international star. So for whatever reason, uh, Roger did the same thing, went over there and got a gig with a fellow named uh, Boo, who is this clown? <laughs> I can't stand his films compared to the other ones. Uh, Luigi oh, Vonzi. Luigi Vonzi. And he says, look, I've got an idea here. Uh, for this new character, and obviously it was inspired by Leone and the the Eastwood films, Man with No Name. But you can say that about a lot of spaghetti westerns. Um, you know, you can see hints of other people that I named off in the intro. You can see hints of Sartana. You can see hints of Sabata. Even you can see, you know, there's bits and pieces. You know, uh, Ringo, uh, Django, uh, especially Django, considering how brutal things get. Uh, but yeah, there's something different about this because, yeah, a lot of those people had obvious quirks. You know, they're very comic booky in a lot of ways. You know, they don't fill in a lot of backstory. It's almost like a video game. You know, we give you like two lines of backstory and you fill in the rest uh, and tell us how deep it is. <laughs> uh, but you know, this time he's very, very fallible and not in the sense of like you know being sensitive or you know his his flaws uh you know his, his love of women does him in or some shit no no he's basically a scumbag <laughs> uh he is in the same vein as kind of well not even there but what Lee Van Cleef kind of made a uh, his meal of throughout the 60s 70s and 80s that kind of character uh seedy dark self-motivated self-interested and yet, still not there because Lee Van Cleef always had that air of accomplishment. You know, I've been there and done that kind of a thing. Uh, I know what I'm doing. This guy does not know what he's doing. He thinks he does. Uh, but you'll see every single time he's going to go in there and try to pull some kind of scam, maybe inadvertently wind out uh, trying to help somebody out, but it's really only for selfish motivation, uh, how, how much money he's going to get out of it or whatever. And he doesn't know what the frick he's doing. He thinks he's he's like too smart for his own good. I'm gonna trick all these people. I'm gonna like you know do a hustle on them. And every time he gets caught, every time he gets tortured, if there is a woman involved with him, even tangentially, she's gonna have some really horrible thing happen to her that he may or may not be able to save her from. Usually, he's not able to save her. Um, you know, it's it's a very strange, problematic character, and yet. He made effectively, if you want to, you know, do the larger scale, you know, the broader picture. He made four films out of this character, and really, you could say six because you know the blind man character isn't that far removed. We'll get to that later. And certainly, what he was doing in Coming at You was pretty much the stranger all over again uh, with a wife. You know, a little, little more tied down, the stranger in later life, I guess. Uh, but most of his career, he kept remaking the same damn movie, better and better. I'll say that. Uh, because the stuff he did later with Baldi was much, much better than the stuff he did with Vonzi. Vonzi, when you think of Spaghetti Western directors, I can bet you not one out of 10,000 people that are into Spaghetti Westerns will name Luigi Vonzi as, oh yeah, here's a great Spaghetti Western director. The guy's a schmuck. Uh, but uh, 
we'll get to the individual merits of the films and whatever in a bit. But that's the bottom line. That's basically what you're looking at here. Uh, and actually, apparently, uh, according to Tony Anthony here, one of the quotes was uh, that Vonzi gave him was like, okay, well, you're a bad guy, but you do good in spite of yourself. Uh, you're not John Wayne. You're like the street guy, and the audience can identify with you because, you know, the audience comes in, they're kind of schmucks like you, and, okay, yeah, I could be him. That's his whole shtick. Uh, but you would think with hearing that, okay, well, this is audience identification. I can't see anybody really identifying with Tony Anthony Stranger. He's just too uh, fallible in the wrong ways, slick in the wrong ways, dirty, uh, flawed in the wrong ways. Uh, but yet the films themselves, even the Vonzi ones, are pretty damn good in their own right. They'll take some getting used to. If you start the spaghetti westerns and you walk into any Tony Anthony film, you're like, what the fuck was that? Uh, when I first saw a lot of these, I did not like them at all. And then I saw ones that I really did like and then went backwards. And, okay, well, now this one, I can see why this one has some merits. This one I really like after all. This one I don't like still, but, okay, scenes work, that kind of a thing. Uh, so it's really a problematic character, and therefore deserves some discussion here. So uh, is there anything you want to say just on a broad base uh, in terms of Tony Anthony and the well, films he's been there? Well, yeah, uh, it's really interesting how uh, he, he did a small small couple of bit roles, nothing major at all, even as far as bit, bit or extra roles goes. Before right. So um, there, there's a much deeper story involved that I don't think either one of us is aware of, of how this transplanted uh, American suddenly uh, not only got notoriety in terms of, uh, when he went over there, in terms of Alan Klein was the producer of these things. Uh, You know. Well, definitely Brian, I know that. Yeah, no, yeah, he did the the other ones too. Really? I didn't know that. And how he got a starring role. Come on, you know, uh, there were enough people over there already making pictures. There mm-hmm. are enough uh, uh, Americans over there making pictures. There are enough Germans over there making pictures. You know, <laughs> talking about um, that. So here comes this guy with no nothing. He's not even a freaking TV show. You know what I'm saying? And so he's not coming with baggage. He's not coming with a. How do you say it? Uh, you know, when you go for a job. Uh, not he doesn't have a resume. A resume. He has no resume. So, you know, what happened here? You know, this yeah, worked out. I mean, well, there's, there's, a, there's a big story we don't know. You're actually um, right. I, I took a skim through some uh, stuff that I had grabbed, you know, just general info. And there was some kind of connection with Alan Klein right from the start. I don't know, maybe it's because he was considered himself a small-time producer. Uh, maybe it was just because, you know, friends of friends, that kind of a thing. But somehow, yeah, I mean, it was just like, okay, well, you know, you know this guy. We're both producers or whatever the hell. Come on in and we'll, we'll put you in this thing. And probably because it's cheaper. I would imagine it's kind of like when uh, I did the interview way back at the beginning of Third Eye Cinema with uh, Giovanni Lombardo Radice, John Morgan. And he was talking about uh, who is that guy? He did the um, remember the one when he, he, where uh, Giovanni was with Fred Williamson and they were breaking the casino. Uh, Deadly Impact, oh, yeah, I think yeah. it was. Yeah, the guy that produced that, uh, Di Martino, uh, not not Sergio Martino, Alberto Di Martino. 
He was a producer that became a director later on, and it was because he was too fucking cheap, basically. It was the bottom line. It's like, I don't want to waste any money on some fucking director. I can do this myself. And he goes in, and of course, he was a complete asshole and difficult to deal with, and the films were questionable. But it's the same thing I get the impression of here. You know, Alan Klein was notoriously a bastard. Uh, he was known for screwing over the Beatles. That's basically his claim to fame uh, with Apple Music. Um... So I can easily see him saying, "Yeah, fuck this. I don't want to pay some actor, some known commodity. We'll just make one. Here, you do it. You're, you're friends with this guy. Come on, you you star in this thing. Here, we'll give you. Uh, how about well, uh, you know? And, and he gives him some peanut salary just because it's like, oh, here I'll give you a job, kind of a thing, <laughs> entry level. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we don't want to be the Alan Klein show. There's a lot more to Alan <laughs> Klein too. Um, well, the other thing too is is Tony Anthony. Certainly, he had a look. You know, he. Wasn't a bad-looking guy, and uh, you know, especially when he was younger, and a little sunburn or makeup or the combination thereof. He he carried himself well. He, he stood up straight, and but yeah, you definitely touched upon a few moments ago all the oddball things about his character uh, that he's portraying. Um, he's not an idealist. He has no, no uh, ideologies at all that we are aware of or that we can even see. He's an opportunist. And that's the thing. The stranger is an opportunist. Occasionally, occasionally, you will see glimmers of humanity. Like uh, the, one of them, oh God, they, become, they do become interchangeable sometimes. He gets the shit beat out of him very, very badly. Oh, very violently, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the second picture, and right. um, and he sees her about to gang rank this girl, right? And he looks over, and you you see in his face, in his eyes. I mean, I I'm filling this in for myself as a, as the audience, as a viewer, but you could see if he wasn't in such a fucked up shape, he would try to he would try to do something about that. Right. And then they kill her. Yep. And, and that's and the you, thing. I was saying earlier about the women because even though yeah. he wants to do something even, just because they got involved in him, just because she helped him out when he was screwed up, it's yeah. like, okay, well, let's just take this girl and randomly you know, rape her and kill her. And, that's, and he can't do anything about it. And that's the problem with these movies in a lot of respects. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, there, are, there are moments, there are, there are uh, scenes like that which are very interesting. So I, I wouldn't say that Van, Vance, Vance Lewis, whatever the fuck his name, Luigi <laughs> Vance, was a complete hack. I mean, he just wasn't up to, you know, the, the better of, of, of other people working in the genre. I don't you know right. how many pictures this guy even make. But they are interesting pictures, also the, primarily because of Anthony. Now, yes, and they're visual. Go into the, yeah. So you want to go to the first one? Yeah. All right, so the first one was The Stranger in Town, or A Stranger in Town. Uh, apparently, it was also known as A Dollar Between the Teeth. I don't know anybody that's seen or released it that way. It was always A Stranger in Town, or the first Stranger movie, to my knowledge. Um, it's a cool basically, of the official Stranger films, it is by far the best. Um, I'm not fond of – he had a thing, at least in the first couple of Stranger films, I think it's gone by the third one, of blonding his hair. So he was actually kind of like thrusting his hair. So this guy's obviously, he's very obviously Italian, very obviously Sicilian at that. And here he is coming in looking like, 
I, I don't know, Justin Bieber or something. Like it, it just doesn't fit. You know, this mop top. And I'm talking about the young Justin Bieber. This mop top of hair, all like frosted blonde, and it's just like, no, he's not a Ringo. I'm sorry, this doesn't work. I don't know that it worked for Ringo. It certainly doesn't work for the stranger. Um, but uh, what really uh, works about this film, basically. It's this is a problem with these films too. They're almost like Eddie Constantine films, which hopefully we'll talk next season. Uh, where in a lot of cases you're like, what the fuck is the plot here? There's no plot. Uh, it you kind of get introduced in the middle, and the puzzle pieces don't necessarily all fall into place. Like what's going on? It's like, <laughs> you're watching and watching. Okay, I know this character. I know that character. I know what happened in this scene, and that scene. I still don't know what the fuck's going on. Uh, you're there for a while. He comes in. He wanders into town. This. I will give Vonzi credit. This was a very atmospheric film, at least in certain parts. The cinematography is excellent. Um, there are scenes in this, like the opening scenes, that are extremely effective. Uh, and again, of the first three uh, Stranger films, there's no comparison to the other two. The other two are dog shit compared to this. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, what happens is he goes in there and just kind of figuring your way through what you think is the plot. He's wandering around. He's just like a bum, basically. He's watching these guys come into town, you know, doing their dirty deals. They might have even been, like, you know, abusing the women or whatever, too, and just sitting there watching them. Uh, finally, he goes and puts on a Confederate, uh, or, you know, whatever they call those uniforms, or Civil War uniforms, right? Uh so was he really a soldier coming in to infiltrate them? Or is he just a scumbag that happened to have stolen a soldier's uniform? Who the hell knows? So he goes in then and takes the – he meets with – I think he met with the, the military at one point. That's why he was wearing the, the uniform. Uh, pretending he was – wasn't he pretending he was like a postal inspector or something? Or is that the second film? Um, so anyway, he does this, and all of a sudden then he's like dealing with these crooks and pretending he wants to be part of them. Oh, here, I'll help you out. I'll help you get this, uh, the gold shipment that was coming through, right? Because apparently these crooks had you know, shot down this original cavalry that came through or whatever the deal was. Uh, but then he does something where he double-crosses them, and he's like, all of a sudden he's trying to run out with the money. But they know about it because he's not that slick. He's not as slick as he thinks he is, as always. So they start torturing him and beating the shit out of him and everything possible. He escapes from them, uh, but then he ends up going along and follows them. So basically now the, this crowd who has this woman who's kind of – she seems a little dikey to me, but she's like definitely into you know putting the boot heel on, on guys, you know, maybe a little less than them or something going on there. Uh, and he's following oh, them around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. he's actually following them around, like you know, everywhere they go, because they're like traveling along and stopping at various hideouts or whatever in the desert, and and he'll be up there on a hill all the time, just looking at him. And you know, somebody will go up there, like go shoot him or chase him away, and the gang they're stopping, yeah, let him stay, or whatever. And he just follows them the whole time. Sometimes he'll talk to them for a second, like oh, I'm still here. Uh, they just ignore him. Finally, he gets together with them, and once again, he gets tied up. The whole deal. Uh, this one here that I was talking about comes on to him with, you know, basically, I guess just trying to titillate him or something. I'm not sure what, was, what the dynamic is because, again, the story's never really spelled out. So she's doing her little S&M type thing with him, and all of a sudden he, I guess, breaks his bonds and breaks her neck <laughs> just like that and goes out, and now he's going to go and get back at them, I guess. You know, why he's getting back at them, I don't know, because he was basically, you know, triple dealing everybody. Is he a soldier? Is he a postal inspector? Is he just some weirdo 
still trying to rip everybody off? Who the hell knows? Uh, I would guess the latter. So finally, he goes. Uh, okay, you say something. No, I think you forgot the one thing though that she got. The uh, I think she's played by Yolanda Modio. Yeah, who? But <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was also responsible for for uh, Trina's other chick, which yes. he saw. So uh, I think yes, beside her obvious butchness, which doesn't make her the villain. But she's like a twisted, evil, sadistic bitch. So, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, once he gets loose, yeah, the first person he's going after is probably the first person he he knows he can take, maybe. Right. And once again, it comes back to that thing where he's not really doing anything. He's just kind of watching these girls go down, you know, getting raped, tortured, killed, whatever. But then later, maybe he'll try to get revenge for it, and he'll be upset about it. Okay, well, I guess he's not totally, like, over the edge. You know, it shows he's got a heart still somewhere. But it's kind of like, you know, the Grinch, you know, it's a couple sizes small or something. And he certainly never has the power or authority to, you know, do them right or save them or avenge them even. Uh, It just kind of happens along the way. Uh, And and after he goes and kills the one girl there, he starts, you know, basically one by one, you know, knocking them all off until he gets his way at the end. And I think, doesn't he actually, I mean, again, I'm not positive because I saw a bunch of them in a row, but what, didn't he actually give the gold back to the uh, Confederates wherever all they were? Because I, I had a person he yeah. kept meeting with them. Yeah, yeah, he actually gives the gold away, which is kind of weird. Um, I guess at the last minute they probably thought, well, let's let's show he has a heart of something. Fill in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure if it was this one or the next film, but do you remember that he had this old drunk that was kind of like a preacher, but he was also working with what he thought was, you know, the the postal inspector or whatever he's supposed to be. But of course, he's not really that. Yeah, I think that may be the next one. Okay. So anyway, basically, the first film is. Flawed in a lot of respects, but cinema, cinematographer, how do you say that? Cinema, cinematographically, I guess is the way you would say it out loud. <laughs> uh, well, no, uh, I'm thinking in terms of cinematography specifically. Uh, it's very, very well shot. It's almost <clears throat> pushing Leone level, uh, and yet yeah. it's a very flawed film. The the plot, as you can tell, we don't really even know what the hell's going on. It's kind of all over the place. The motivation is never explained on it for any of the characters, really. <clears throat> Uh, and, you know, it, it's just not what it could have been in the hands of a better director, in the hands of like a Corbucci, Sergio Corbucci or something like that, or in the hands of a Leone, uh, in the hands of, you know, there's people that you can name off that would do this so much better. Uh, but, you know, in the hands of Vonzi, considering it was Vonzi, definitely the best thing he's done, uh, and respectable, more than respectable. Uh, I did enjoy well, this film, despite its flaws. There are other things that are going on in here too. I think, uh, you know, for a western, it's it's hinting at. For a western, I mean, for me, it's hinting at. Uh, you you could feel. I think it was the Tony Anthony thing too, uh, anti-establishment and this con- con- conforming. Mm-hmm. Because he was anti-establishment, he was anti-everything. That's the problem with his character. Yeah, he's almost nihilistic. Because he, 
Yeah, he's nihilistic. He's not exactly going for anything. He doesn't stand for anything but himself. But right. then, as opposed to the Nietzschean way, where he would be, yo, know, stronger for it, better for it, that's Uber not mentioned. going <laughs> right. That's not going working for him either, and that's right. really not on his agenda. So, like you actually put it, we don't know what's going on here. Yeah, and it's it's possible also that. I don't know, yo. Know, this is the result of uh, translations or um, whatever tinkering. Uh, it's it's certainly a, a favored film by a lot of people because there are hundreds of westerns yes. um, made in, in Italy, Germany, and Spain, primarily in Italy during this time period from sixty. Orish to seventy-two, and um, there are some that are, of course, classics. There are some that have great reps. They're just not great movies. This one's an interesting movie, um, but flawed, which will bring right. us to the next picture. And also, since you mentioned Nietzsche, when you think of that, you think of a couple of things automatically. You could take it. You know, in a very obvious thing, you know, everybody starts pointing fingers and saying, "Oh, look, Hitler, Nazi Germany." But in a lot of respects, Nietzsche was really uh, more pointing towards satanic philosophy. You know, a Levian sort of a thing, where, "Oh, look, you know, because we are elite, because we're more intelligent, we're more supposedly developed, or whatever, you know, we can transcend the rules around us." There's more of a satanic elitist. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things playing into this. Um, Yet he's more like he's like a Don Trump. He, yeah, he's might be talking and thinking along the same lines, but he's a complete bumbling idiot. You know, a failure in many respects. A, you know, seventeen times bankrupted. You know, a, probably a failure in bed, considering his like small hand story there. Uh, you know, and his rug that he has. Uh, his horrible like narcissistic ego that he has to have stroke twenty four seven by himself if nobody else. Uh, you know. It's not the Nietzschean ideal in any respect, and that's kind of where the stranger is. He's this kind of flawed, you know, Karl Rove type, as opposed to being like, you know, a Levian ideal, a Nietzschean ideal, uh, anything that you would expect. He's not an Ubermensch. He's, if, any, if anything, he's the Untermensch. Uh, he's a total schmuck, but he thinks he knows the right way to go. Uh, so even in that, he fails. So at core, the film is flawed in so many ways and so many respects. But cinematographically, it works. And in terms of, you know, compared to some other spaghetti westerns, if you can get away with the weirdness of it, which a lot of it comes from these flaws, uh, it's, it's actually pretty enjoyable. And it's definitely the best of the Vonzies. So now we go on to The Stranger Returns, which comparatively was a huge letdown. Uh, not that that one set a really high standard, but um, the visuals are definitely nowhere near as nice. There's nowhere near the atmosphere. They don't even try for the, the night shoots, the, the spooky abandoned town, or by closing the shutters as the wind blows the, the leaves and the tumbleweeds through and this guy comes in with his hat down over his eyes. None of that shit. It's very like in-your-face and kind of dull. Um... The only thing I really dug about this one, and again, the story makes even less sense. Here he is now, and he's again. This is, maybe this is the one I'm thinking about where he kept dealing with the Confederates or whatever the hell they are, the Confederales or whatever. Um, 
because there was some kind of nonsense that it turned out it was about the stagecoach itself being you know, like Chichen Chong when they had the, the van made a pot and they had to bring it across the border and up, up in smoke. Uh, this is the same thing. Somehow this stagecoach is made of gold and therefore people are after it. And But it just you, to get to that point to figure out what the hell's going on, you, you're sitting there for like 45 minutes and scratching your head like, okay, I, I see these characters interrelating. I see incidents happening, but what the fuck is – where's the plot? Did the Red sign a cocktail napkin? Did they forget to hand the cocktail napkin in when they were filming it so they don't even know what they're filming? They're just filming scenes without a, a plot or a framework behind it? I don't know. Um, what worked about it, if anything, was this other character I had mentioned earlier, which was this guy who was kind of a itinerant preacher slash crazy drunk. Uh, who comes into town with his little, literally like a soapbox, stands on it and starts preaching. But then he's also sort of a, I hate to say a spy or a half-ass spy, because when he thinks that uh, you know the stranger is a government guy, you know, like the postal inspector or whatever, uh, he starts plotting with him about, oh yeah, you know these banditos are going to do this, and you better do this. Here, here's how to work that, and watch out for this one, and maybe if you meet me over here tonight at seven o'clock, we can. You know, and he basically helps him plot and scheme, then goes right back to acting crazy again. Uh, and at the end of the movie, instead of giving the money to whoever the federal is or whatever, he gives a bunch of it, like half of the the money, to this guy because he helped him out. It's more understandable. It's more of a logical motivation, and the character is sort of like uh, Gabby Hayes done right, I guess. Uh, that sort of a thing. Um, not annoying, never like hilarious and goofy, but you know, a likable enough. Uh, not sidekick, but you know, uh, that sort of a thing. Like, oh, here's the old coot that's going to help you out or whatever. Uh, but again, you wind up with the exact same tropes. Okay, he goes in town, he gets involved with or sees a girl or something. They're going to get tortured or raped and killed. He doesn't do anything about it. He's like, God, like, whatever. He gets caught in the middle of a scam. He gets tortured and beat up and dragged and left for dead and the whole Django kind of a thing. You know, Everything but the hands crushed and left to hang over a cross while he shoots them. Uh, and... You know, by the end of it, you're like, what the fuck just happened? And why was that a really inferior, you know, Xerox copy of the first movie? Um, I really thought it was kind of the worst of the three Stranger movies, which is kind of tough to say concerning the third one. So uh, go ahead. What do you think about this one? <laughs> Boy, when you really slam a movie, you don't leave me much room to wiggle. Um <laughs> Well, the thing that's interesting about these two pictures is that Frank Wolf was a fucking amazing actor, really, really underrated, uh, really underrated actor, who's appeared in some stuff we really like, was in the last picture as the villain. You know, Frank Wolf, he has a way about him. He's a man with his own demons. Um and he was probably one of the things that made that movie really work, the first one. Now, Dan Vadis is the villain in this one. And Dan Vadis is... Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention a moment ago, and it, and it was going to drop my mind, so I'll do it now, is that a lot of the familiar faces of the uh, grizzly-looking, bearded, mustached uh, bad guys in these pictures, especially these, these Stranger movies, all look familiar because they're freaking muscle men. Oh, that thing is, you know, Ralph Baldessari was a muscle man, too. Right. That thing had died out for the, that, that whole genre. And a lot of the guys, 
are moonlighting in westerns about now. And uh, Dan Battis was was uh, Hercules or Samson or one of those guys. He's he's actually not a bad villain in this. Actually, I always thought he was surprisingly effective in this. But you're right. It's it looks like the budget's a little lower on this one, and it's it's yeah carbon copies the first picture to the point where I think to its detriment because you know what they what the Stranger Returns actually had going for it is the first one actually did pretty well over here in the states and probably other English speaking areas, and so it had a good uh, promotion. Posters, trailers were decent. You know, they were really pushing the picture. And you got to remember, for this time period, we're talking uh, 67, 68, there's not a lot of movies coming out over here. A lot of them are going to TV or would not show up until much later, you know, via the Leon, the success of the Leone, or the aftermath of the success of the Leone Westerns. So, um, I think the promotion was much better than the movie, but it's not as bad as one would think. Uh, but that level of sadism is still there, and and I wonder if it is it Vanzi? Was it Tony Anthony? You know, it's like there's just some stuff going on in these these two pictures for sure. Yeah, um, I'd be inclined to say that it was Tony Anthony because it continues throughout his career. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, yes, and, and, a little and, more sadistic, and, but and, and he and he actually becomes a producer, an active producer with the next picture. Right. And not only did he write this story, which he did for this one, for the Silent Stranger, but he actually worked on a screenplay. So it's like you know, uh, Tony Anthony production. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Now, this one is really freaking bizarre. Uh, usually when most people refer to it, if they refer to it at all, they say, oh, look, it's one of those Eastern Westerns, kind of like Red Sun or, you know, how uh, Leone, more or less, after all these years, kind of admitted, oh, yeah, I, I kind of stole, uh, uh, what do you call it, fistful of dollars there from, uh, you know, Seven Samurai and you know, Jimbo and all this kind of stuff. So uh, this was a more obvious nod to it because here you are doing the same thing that you would get later with Shanghai Joe or, you know, like I mentioned, Red Sun, you know, pictures like that where they started mixing uh, Asian actors with spaghetti Western actors. Uh, the mm. problem is, even though it does those films a one-up and doesn't stage it like, you know, the, uh, what's his name there, David Carradine uh, Kung Fu series, where it's like, oh, okay, it's set in the Old West, but he's a Shaolin monk. No, they actually, in this case, went to Japan. So that's a big thing going for it. So here you are, he's, instead of the fish out of water being the Japanese samurai, wherever the hell he is, or the, the Chinese Kung Fu guy, or whatever the case may be, uh, now it's the reverse. Uh, he is the fish out of water in a completely foreign country. Uh, the problem is the film doesn't work worth a shit. <laughs> it's, and I've heard Tony Anthony say, oh, yeah, I think this is my best film. He's high. Uh, the film is crap. Uh, um, actually, it was tough to say that the second Stranger film was the worst one because this one may actually be the worst uh, of his entire career. What happens is 
uh, he's involved with it, it, again the the opening plot is kind of uh, written on cocktail napkin. Uh, he walks in on more or less these guys going and having basically killed uh, this Japanese uh, guy who's walking around. I don't know if they stripped him down or what. But he's basically in his underwear. You know how they wear their funny towels, almost like a diaper. Ah. Getting the on. Yeah. So there he is in his diaper, and he's like dying. Uh, and Tony comes in. I guess he's like sleeping in the barn or whatever. Because they're doing this in a barn where they're beating up the torch on this guy. And basically, he doesn't even beat him up or kill him or anything. He does some cheap trick. You'll get in a Scooby Doo movie or something where it's like, oh look, they just stepped into the lasso. Now I'm going to string them all up by one foot upside down like Mussolini uh, <laughs> over a. Uh, uh, you know, one of the beams in the barn, and they're all standing like, oh, oh, swinging, and he's basically smiling like, yeah, have a nice day. Uh, and he goes over and talks to this guy, and the guy's dying wishes. Oh, here, um, can you get this little scroll that he pulls out of whatever a dagger or something um, back to these people in Japan, which you know he would probably just ignore, except he says, oh yes, there's lots of money in it for you, and he's like, hmm, okay, money. So the next thing you see, somehow. This guy who's basically just some bum that's stumbling into this thing, mysteriously had the money and wherewithal to not only know where the hell Japan is, you know, because remember he's like some dumb hick out in the West in 1800s. Uh, like, yeah, they know where Japan is. Get the fuck out of here. Half Americans don't even know where the, what the, the American map looks like. Forget about the rest of the world and picture that back in the old West. Uh, so mysteriously now he manages to get to Japan. We don't see how. Uh, there he is. And he starts going around, and of course there's the little bit of the fish out of water thing where, okay, you know, almost like Shogun, like, oh, Anjin-san, whatever the hell. And, but he never he does anything like he's going to get pissed on his head or something like that or, you know, none of the stuff that would really happen in a fish out of water scenario. He's just kind of like, you know, played it for a couple of cheap laughs. And he winds up getting involved with, in a pretty short order, uh, this young, I mean, young, we're talking about like, she must have been 10 years old, if that. A uh, Japanese girl and her fat uncle, and a really, really gay kabuki actor who I guess is the the fat uncle's attendant, uh, and they do this kind of thing back and forth where he's supposed to give him the scroll and they're supposed to give him gold, and he does like a calculation, like, oh, okay, what what would uh, fourteen pails be in uh, you know U.S. dollars? Okay, that's how much that's going to be. Uh, they give him the money. And he leaves, but they say, okay, my uncle has another thing for you. If you go and kill this, because there's like a guy out there basically uh, harassing everybody in the village. You know? And I think they even have like a cannon or a Gatling gun, too, with a white guy who turns out to be um, – he's like a regular in a lot of the Stranger films. He's a friend of um, uh, Tony Anthony. Uh so what happens – a fellow named Lloyd Batista. He pops up in about three or four of these damn things with him. Um so what happens is, he's like, oh, yeah, if you get rid of him, we'll throw in some extra money for you. So he goes back there. I don't know if he's really seriously considering getting rid of this guy or not, but then once again, he gets caught and tortured, and they laugh at him and say, oh, look, at least I'll give you real money. This guy gives you fake money. So he's like, here, why don't you go kill him for money? And they kick him out if they beat him up whatever the hell else. So there's a back and forth over the money and whatever else. And in the end, he more or less does the right thing, kicks the baddies out, including this American scumbag, you know, kills them all, whatever he does, and gets the scroll to the, quote, proper party, which is basically none of these people. It's, it's the young girl because she's supposed to be like a princess or something. And it turns out that it's the equivalent of a, a check. It's like, oh, yeah, the bearer of this thing is supposed to get you much money and be the princess or whatever else. 
So he, in the end, effectively does the right thing. You know, gives it to her and says whatever. And there's a cheap joke it ends on. It's like, oh, if you ever come back to our country, learn the language. And it ends on that, which is actually amusing. I did laugh at that one line, but it's just it's a bad, bad movie. It's trying to be Shogun. It's ahead of the other films that I have mentioned in many respects because they did set it in Japan, but it's so stupid and very poorly done for a Western because you never believe anything that happens. How do you get from point A to point B? Well, yeah, you can extrapolate and make up stories in your head, but it's never stated. It never makes any sense. And the action and the interplay is never like, you know, if you watch a lot of samurai dramas, Chambara movies and stuff like that, like I do, uh, the big thing about it is intrigue and plotting and, you know, people scheming. I, I guess, I don't watch that shit, but I guess this, the equivalent would be like the Game of Thrones kind of thing, so I hear people talking about that. Um, you know, it's basically who's in power over this one, and I've got to talk to Lord Nobunaga because he's going to get in power over Lord Toriyama, and then we've got this guy coming over here, and he's kind of climbing his way up in the organization and don't trust anybody and back and forth. None of that is really here. You get the, the vaguest broad sketches of it, but none of it works. None of it comes together. You're never intrigued. You're never involved. It's just like you're sitting back almost with your mouth hanging up. I'm like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. How, like, you know, how much degradation could he put these poor Japanese to? Uh, my wife, unfortunately, saw it the second time I was skimming through it for the show. And, uh, you know, she was just, like, totally disgusted by it, you know, about the uh, racial stereotyping and whatever else, which, of course, you got to expect with these films. But it was just so blatant and bad. And there's nothing to justify it and say, well, yeah, but, you know, like even you watch like a Charlie Chan movie, yeah, but it's got this, and this acting is good, and these mysteries are good, and this atmosphere is good. This has nothing. The only thing it has going for it is the fact that instead of having a Japanese guy in the Old West, they took the Old West guy and put him in Japan. Otherwise, piece of shit. So, your turn. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, one thing we haven't really been mentioning with these stranger movies is his unusual relationship with his horse. No, not yes. that kind of relationship. Yeah, but the horse <laughs> is called Pussy. <laughs> the horse, yes, the horse is called Pussy, but no, it's not that kind of relationship that we know Equus. of. Equus Part Two, starring the stranger. Uh, <laughs> um, After in the Great. Oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> I'll stop. Well, yeah, yeah, because he, which is funny because, um, because. Yeah. This is outrageous for the for the first two pictures and then to the third one. He's, he's referring to the horse as pussy. And I'm like, wow, you're getting away with a lot, aren't you? Okay, and and and, <laughs> pus- and what was that? Go figure. You know, yes, they're, pussy they're galore. To honor black and pussy galore. Plenty of okay. later. <laughs> yes, and that, but that's afterwards at 671. Yeah. But, um, this. <laughs> the thing here, you know, like he talks to the horse, the horse pisses him off, sometimes the horse helps him out, drags his, drags his like, battered body around, or out yep. of something, out of some predicament. But I find it really interesting that, that he's got this kind of unusual relationship with the horse. Uh, play comically, and yet... <sighs> 
it's some odd little tangential thing they added to the story to make it even odder. Um, the funny thing about this picture was they made it and uh, 68 for MGM. MGM actually put up some more money, so I guess it's the Alan Klein influence. And I think the other pictures were primarily uh, probably UK, Italian produced. Yeah. Uh, this is like, there was some American money in this somewhere. And it was shelved pretty much. Uh, yeah. From what I can tell, for like six years. And this is and the beginning the, of this happening to him a couple of times. Several of yeah. his films get shelved for, like you mentioned, almost a decade. So, go ahead. Well, the funny thing about this is, well, it's not funny. It's, it's kind of sad. But the funny thing about it is, um, so this movie gets shelved, and then they, they decide to, actually MGM weren't the ones that put it out. I think they sold it to like a small smaller company to put it out. And by then, we're talking 75, the post, you know, the Bruce Lee had passed on, so the, we got the whole deluge, deluge of all these martial arts pictures coming out from Hong Kong. Right. And the, the occasional uh, ones from Japan, like the Sinichiba bodyguard type things, remember? Mm-hmm. Street yep. Fighter movies. Yep. So here's something they could try to market as a martial arts western. Because it wasn't that far removed from the last, you know, the, the My Name is Nobody pictures was like 70, 71, maybe 72. Yeah. So it's, uh, maybe even 73. So it wasn't that long ago. So I think they were trying to make some money on this. Looking through the vault, say, what do we have here? Oh, it's, look, it's a martial arts comedy with the Western. <laughs> oh, yeah, put it out. So, um, but I think they waited too long. Uh, it doesn't work. But it's it's got some odd things, odd enough things in it, which go in vain with the character he plays and the whole thing. Yeah, it's just a little uneasiness with the Asian princess because um, yeah, because normally you know, it's be like a romance kind of a thing, but she's like nine or ten years old. It's just weird, and they give her a lot of focus, and it's like, like you mentioned, there's sort of a queasy undertone there, like, nothing's really being said or done, it's just, uh, I don't know about this. (laughs) There's definitely a queasy undertone, there's definitely, um, but that that appears in a number of Japanese movies, come on. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's not go there. (laughs) What was that cute little (sighs) Legend of the Eight Samurai, do you remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah, the, the Sonny Chiba ones, the, the, the two-parter. Sonny Chiba yeah. one. That was like a you know, two-and-a-half-hour, very nicely produced. Uh, but I didn't think it was as queasy uh, as this. No, but but there was there was a, a young Japanese princess in that that was kind of on the edge. And yeah, this this definitely... But this is a, not a horrible movie. It's, it's a victim picture. It's a victim of circumstances. It's a victim of being abandoned by its own studio, probably realized when they saw it, oh, we don't know what to do with this. <laughs> Maybe they obviously thought it wasn't strong enough as a feature. I realized that since they put some money into it, they didn't want to take the bath of releasing it to TV only, because then they have to do some judicial cutting. Right. You know? 
like late night TV, and then, you know, they're just shooting themselves in the ass. So I think eventually when it did come out, like five, six years later, they, they kind of milked it for what all they could. But the funny thing was, you know, it's like, here you are, six years later, the stranger returns. Well, yeah, but nobody remembered who he was. <laughs> and I think yeah. that, that hurts the movie, too. And, um, you know, these three pictures, uh, we didn't mention it, but two of them were in 67 and one was in 68. So there's actually a break now. Uh, but go ahead, if you want to finish up. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, about yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a break, but in the meantime, um, which I did see. Oh, you did see this uh, one? Because there's a strange picture in here that I've not seen. Come Together, to, uh, well, okay, it's Come Together, yeah. and it's got Luciana Paluzzi in it. And he's the director, producer, writer, and star of this thing. But I've not seen it, and it's not a Western, so. Yeah. And he, and he co-produced it with Ringo Starr, so you know there's massive amounts of cocaine being snorted for this one. Um, Rosemary Dexter's also with it, a mainstay of Giallo films. And this is a weird movie. This is a counterculture picture where okay. he plays a, a filmmaker, and it's sort of like it uh, takes place in England and in Paris, but he's too old for the part. So he becomes a, comes off as a Lothario when he really is supposed to be like a, you know like a student filmmaker is what I'm trying to say. That's the part yeah. he plays, and uh, but he's like a, a filmmaker teacher. Right. He's still still starting to look a little older by 68. So it becomes like a sleazy bastard. <laughs> and so, and Rose, Rosemary Dexter, that's not her real name. You know, she's just appeared in quite a number of giallos and Italian thrillers. Uh, and Luciana Paluzzi, of course, appear, but uh, as a love interest, and there's plenty of Luciana skin uh, in this movie for those who want to seek it out. Um, you know who had this? Uh, Luminous Film and Video Works had this briefly, and I think nobody. That's where I saw my copy. So one of the gray market dealers, one of the better gray market dealers. I hate that. It's a funny. It actually he sounds had, like the kind of film that, uh, what's his name, Walter Olson would have picked up for Scorpion before he lounged into this limbo of working with uh, Kino and just putting out mostly crap. Uh, he put out a lot of odd, uh, usually British but sometimes Australian um, d- dramas from the 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s that sound mm-hmm. along the lines of this. So that is a I know prospect. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, it's interesting people behind us. It was music by Stelvio Cipriani. Uh, Tonino Della Colli was the cinematographer. He actually went on uh, to become a director. Um, it's not worth their time, really. But um, <laughs> but this is like this is like a, I think a movie that he, he felt he wanted to make. You know, of course, you know, directing, producing, starring, writing, doing everything, probably. Following the co-stars. And this is the same <laughs> year he made Blind Man. Yes. Now, this is a strange film. Uh, basically, if you are of a certain vintage, I mean, I'm younger than you, but still, you know, I was around for certain things that, uh, well, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want people to get the wrong idea, but nonetheless, I was around for a lot of the things that you talk about, uh, at least at a young age. And, you know, we're talking about a film that was 
basically known not for Tony Anthony, not as a spaghetti western, but because oh yes, yeah, that film that had Ringo Starr in it before Caveman came around, right? Um, the thing is that. The problem is, and it depends on how you're looking at it. If you're looking at it as Ringo never had a role before and he really didn't do too many even afterwards, therefore, you know, he does a good job and he's on screen more than usual. Okay, fine. The thing is, if you're looking at it as, oh, yeah, here's a film with Ringo Starr in it, he's barely in the fucking thing. I mean, he must be in it, what, 15, 20 minutes? He's barely in the running time. Uh, so I was not really impressed by that. He does an okay job of standing there looking kind of lost, you know, the puppy dog eyes and pretending, you know, he's all shaggy because it's around the, uh, the let it be era. So he's basically, oh yeah, he's supposed to be a Mexican bandito. Well, he doesn't look Mexican, but he's definitely ugly and hairy. So, you know, he fits into a spaghetti Western. Um, you know, in in that respect, it really fails, and that's the way I always remembered seeing it. Oh, it's a fucking movie of Ringo, and he's barely in it, and it sucks. Um, even when I was really digging into spaghetti westerns a couple of years ago, uh, it showed up on one or two sets, and I was just like, I don't know. I, I flipped through it. I'm like, yeah, this movie sucks. Who cares? And that was kind of the reaction I had to it, even the last time we had mentioned it just casually in one of our shows. But recently I went back and said, okay, we're going to do that Tony Anthony show soon. I better pull out Blind Man from my collection. I really need to watch it just you know, to address it because you know, Tony only did really six films of any that anybody cares about. Um, so I watched it again, and I'm like, you know, it's not a great film. And it's kind of a goofy comic book conceit. Oh, look, he's actually a blind cowboy, but he can still, like, you know, shoot the uh, whatever the hell off the, the head of your cigarette. Uh, that's, like, really stupid and cheesy to me. But, you know, okay, that's amusing enough in a comic book sort of a way. But it's not that far removed from the better Stranger films. And I don't mean, like, the crappy Stranger films, like the last two we just talked about. I'm talking about the first Stranger film and the ones that will come after it. And I think a lot of that is because he dumped Luigi Vanzi, which was a brilliant move in itself, uh, and got himself a real director, which was Ferdinando Baldi. Uh, I don't know that Baldi did a lot of westerns, but the ones he does here with Tony Anthony, are, and they're not all westerns even, are very entertaining. Uh, all of them are good. So from this point out, basically everything that uh, Tony Anthony does is highly enjoyable. And this is my reference point going here forward. You know, going back to the Stranger films was like, well, that was disappointing. You know, because <laughs> I was starting from the end almost. We'll get to that uh, shortly. But anyway, uh, what happens here is again the plot is still kind of questionable. Uh, basically, this guy's wandering around. You get the whole shtick that he's supposed to be blind, and of course, they gotta make fun of him, the bad guys. Oh, look, yeah, can you see this blind man? They push him around in a circle, whatever, and then, of course, in the end, he ends up like you know doing one of his uh, gun tricks and scaring him and killing him off and whatever else. But uh, the idea is that they take him, they they actually hire him to escort a bunch of mail order brides uh, to like, you know, because they're working the mines out there in the desert. Uh, maybe it's, maybe they're going out to California or whatever the hell, right? So uh, I don't know why they figure, okay, we're going to put a blind man in charge. This maybe because they figured he wouldn't molest the girls. You know, it's the idea of like having a eunuch and a harem. I don't know. Uh, but along the way, he gets screwed over, probably because they figure out he's blind, he's not going to see anything. And part of this is these supposed Mexican bandits, which you know Ringo is part of. Uh, 
and they kidnapped these women and whatever the hell else, and they head down to Mexico. So somehow this blind guy goes and finds his way down to Mexico, uh, and, and they're there, down there shooting federales. Down there. They actually have them like, up against the wall with the, you know, the, the firing squad kind of a thing. Uh, and he ends up first killing Ringo. And then his brother, who gets really upset about this, uh, you know, he gets him into a frothing rage, and then in the end, he takes him out as well. It's not a film you watch for plot, just like the Stranger films. The, the plot is negligible. Uh, Cocktail Napkin is really saying too much. And, you know, there, there are pornos that have more script than this fucking film. But uh, I know we've seen some. We've reviewed some on Third Eye. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, it's enjoyable enough for what it is. It harkens a little bit back to the first Stranger film, although it's not as cinematic. Uh, it's not as, it doesn't have the strengths of the first Stranger film, but it does definitely feel like what's going to be coming up next. And overall, if you can get past the cheesiness of it, there's enough in it to like that I was like, okay, you know what? I, I think this film is nowhere near, and again, this is coming at it from years thinking that, ah, this film sucks. And all of a sudden saying, hey, you know what, Cinema Rescue isn't that bad. I kind of liked it this time, uh, as opposed to, oh, yeah, this is a great film on its own merits. It probably isn't. It probably still kind of sucks in a lot of ways. But uh, coming from that standpoint, that's where I am right now. It's like, okay, it surprised me. It surprised me by being better than I remembered it being. So your turn. This is interesting. Okay. <laughs> so, the, the one totally positive, 100% thing I can get behind on this movie is it has a great single by Ringo Starr. True. Um, at this, this is before Ringo uh, actually, this is before the All-Star Band. Ringo's first. Yeah, this is way before that. This is, this is 60, uh, what is this? 71. 71. Yeah. So the Beatles have already broken up. I don't think uh, I don't think Ringo has done a solo album yet. Now Ringo started doing solo albums in like 75? So much in 74 and 76. That's when maybe he started. Maybe 74, yeah. yeah. And uh, Good Night Vienna, maybe? Maybe it's Yeah, it's around and there. So this has a song called Lime. Yes. Well, see, isn't that bad? Yeah, you're right. Bad. It's got this dragging chain, like a drop chain, drag chain used for the percussion. And I'm like, what's this going on? And it's got a great hook. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I have the single. Don't laugh. I actually really? have the Apple single. Wow. Um, well, you know why? It was the flip side of it. Don't come easy. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So was it that, don't come easy? It was wasn't that a on an album. single then? No, no. It don't come easy. Wasn't on an album. It, it don't come mm-hmm. easy. Was a single that he did as a one-off before okay. he did an album. It showed up on an album later. But what did they? <laughs> right, and he had nothing to put out with it. Don't come easy. And they probably couldn't put anything, you know, it's Apple anyway. They still own Apple because they were putting out Badfinger records on right. Apple around this time. I think that was the only so, band they had was Badfinger. <laughs> about pretty much. They had a few others, but that was Tucky Buzzard was another one. Uh, Tucky I Buzzard remember, was a band. 
my yeah. folks used to get uh, eight tracks from Kmart. Uh, no, not Kmart. The two guys. That's where it was. And uh, they would have like bargain bin type stuff, and they would always pick the shit up in there. And I remember we had the entire Badfinger album collection on eight track. It, you know, at the time I thought it was horrible. I was a kid. Nowadays I appreciate it a little bit more. I remember one of them that always made me laugh was Ass, you know, with the cover with the finger on it, like trying to be a, a Magritte sculpture or something. Uh, but yeah, I mean they they weren't that bad. But that was the only other band I remember being on Apple. Oh yeah, yeah. Tucky Buzzer was the other one. And Tucky Buzzer was a band discovered by uh Bill Wyman. Of course Terry Taylor was in it. Terry Taylor was the brother of Dick Taylor. Dick Taylor mm-hmm. was one of the original Stones guitar players. Why they weren't on a Stones label, I don't know. Affiliated label, they were on. They were on Apple too. Didn't the uh, I know. The pretty things? Yes, Dick. Dick was in the pretty. Still is in the pretty things. Yeah. And the pretty things just put out a CD. Ha ha ha. How many freaking years have been since the pretty things put out a CD? That's crazy. <laughs> Who's still uh, in the band? Who's alive? <laughs> everybody. Pretty really? Much. Wow. Yeah. And it's great. It, it goes along the lines of our introductory to tonight's show. I, I think it's really good. And um, I posted a song from it. It's funny. Sometimes I'll post stuff on Facebook. Not a damn song. And I know people like stuff. And it's like, oh, well, I see somebody else posting. I got 4,000 likes. I'm like, well, I guess I did it at the wrong time. I'll tell you, anyway. I didn't see it if you posted it. <laughs> see, well, obviously you didn't, see? Um, I would have <laughs> Well, you know what? I hate to be tagged sometimes in things because it gets to be a pain in the ass. But I should probably start tagging people, like people I think might be interested yeah. in stuff I post. Because I think that will actually make them go take a look at it. Right. So, anyway, so Blind Man is a great single. It was a flip of a Don't Come Easy. I have it. I'll show it to you. It's scratched to hell. But it's a single from 1971. What do you expect? Yeah, right. <laughs> it wasn't scratch to be worried about you. <laughs> yeah, see? Uh, Lloyd Batista's back in this, and you mentioned earlier Lloyd Batista's a yes. friend of Tony Anthony. He shows up. Magda Kanapka. Isn't that a weird one? Satanic. She's in this. <laughs> a sweet mama. Yep. Ralph Baldessari's back. Once again. Yep. In another one. Yeah, once again, Kristinell. You know, that whole... And the Italian thriller connection is back. Now, oddly enough, this movie did shit in the theaters. It, it was it was way too long. It was 105 minutes, more or less. And it was released here by Fox. One of the things going against it, it did have a bit of nudity. We're talking 1971. But it was a bit mean-spirited. Yes. So... They couldn't sell it because Ringo was the good-hearted, good-natured Beatle playing a Mexican villain. Mm-hmm. They got the usual elements of a stranger film. You know, it's not a stranger film per se, but... Um, it's close enough. You know, like close I said enough. earlier, Tony Anthony makes the same film over and over again. He, he's almost right. like a, a Franco or something. He's obsessive in making the same fucking film over and over. <laughs> so, so they're stuck. And I think Fox took a bath, and I think they pretty much removed it. Alan Klein, again, was, was involved with this sucker. But maybe this maybe this had something to do with Tony Anthony not working for a couple of years. Because 
while The Silent Stranger, The Stranger in Japan, still hasn't come out, effectively, Blind Man Dies, Come Together, I think, may have been barely released here, if not in an exploitation movie there. So the last real movie was The Silent Stranger Returns. Yep. So then... Oh, uh, oh, go ahead. No, there was one I, I missed. Something called Piazza Polita. I never heard of it. I saw this. I had the VHS long time really? ago. Yeah, it's not a Poliziata. It's um, it's a throwback. You know, we did a show a couple of months ago about the Italian police film, crime films. Yes. And so what does this guy make in 1972 in Italy when those kind of things are really popular? He makes a film taking place in the 30s. <laughs> uh, do you remember, like, the Valachi Papers was very yes. popular? The Valachi yes. Papers, and, uh, which is actually a very good movie with Charles Bronson. Charlie Bronson, yeah. And Atypical film. Uh, yes, yes, very, very good. He's really strong in that movie, too. There's a couple other things, uh, you know, all about that whole Godfather-type influence, which we talked about also in our 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 uh, Italian crime show. show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that one. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was called 1931, Once Upon a Time in New York. It had nothing to do with the Leone because it was years before Leone even made his movie. So, Tony Anthony, uh, well, he's back for Luigi Panzi, your favorite. <laughs> um, he wrote it, he stars in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Adolfo Celli's in this, Richard Conti, Irina Pappas, Lionel Stander. There's wow. a guy, like a lot of interesting people. Interesting people and I yeah. saw this. But it's like it's like a stranger film in in I don't know. In an Italian crime movie. You know, it's like it's a period <laughs> piece. They don't have much money. They got they got they they were able to rent the cars. Beyond that <laughs> He's an unlikable character again, um, and oh, Brad Harris was in this thing. That was another thing. Really, Commissar uh, X. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, but by now it's funny because Tony Anthony looks fine. I would say the Western garb is applicable to his frame. We're used to seeing him that. Is to see him play a snarky gangster. Like he, I remember. I remember. If there's something I remember about this movie, very distinctly, he was the kind of guy like when things didn't work out for him, he got very smarmy and pissed people off. And <laughs> so, you know, things didn't go his way, that kind of thing. Yeah. He was trying to rise through the ranks, and it's just being a very unlikable movie, which is probably why. It was on a label, a VHS label here called Sun City or City Sun, City Lights. City Lights video, really cheesy, bad transfers. Uh, and I think years later it turned up in Holland or something. So, yeah, that was a Tony Anthony movie, not a Western. But then... But as far as anybody movie. knew, the last thing he had done was Blind Man. So that was 71. Here we go, 76. And once again... The film does not get released. Uh, so he does a film which is, it would have been my favorite 
Tony Anthony film. It was actually the spur to say, you know, when you're talking about Spaghetti Western, I'm like, why don't we do Tony Anthony? Uh, because this film came out, and I was like, wow, this is great. I love this fucking film. Uh, but my favorite is actually coming after this, uh, which is Get Me. Uh, this thing is nuts. Basically, it's a spaghetti western done by somebody smoking a lot of LSD or something. I don't know what the fuck is going on here. Uh, <laughs> basically, um, it's actually got different titles, supposedly. Again, nobody's ever heard this. Beat a Dead Horse, The Stranger Gets Me. Um, it's another Fernando Bali. It's got, uh, what's his face in there? Lloyd Batista again. Ralph Baldessar is in it again. A couple of Spanish horror veterans. Like when we talked several things, the Spanish horror show, when we talked the Desorio films, when we talked the uh, Paul Nashi films, uh, basically, and sometimes even, uh, not so much with these two people, but the Franco films, uh, Diana Loris and Myrtle Miller. Uh, they popped up in a lot of those kind of things, and here they are here, uh, which is nice because they're both very pretty women. Uh, definitely gave some more than, you know, usually with these Stranger films, you don't get any eye candy or very little of it. Uh, the girls are not that attractive because, you know, I, I know you thought he was okay, but Tony Anthony's kind of like, um, I, I don't want to say frog-like like Eddie Constantine. It's not that bad, but oh. he's very Sicilian and kind of, you know, I, I can't picture like the average woman say, oh, yeah, this guy's hot. He's kind of like, yeah, all right, maybe after a couple of drinks, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, he's kind of low rent in that respect. Uh, and he's a little guy, you know, he's, he's very Sicilian. Uh, he, he's not, he's got a slight frame. Um, so you don't usually get on, gorgeous women. Did you just Eddie Constantine? Oh, my God. <laughs> Eddie Constantine, the frog. Uh, that's what my wife's watching. I was like, he looks kind of like us as a frog. She's like, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I've heard people describe him as wizard-like. Cool, I Ooh, love Eddie Constantine. Those those films are great. Like I said, we're going to talk about him next season. Uh, but he is an ugly fuck. Uh, he actually looks like um, those of you. You wish were... you wish we got because you know the guy the guy somehow he has magnetism. There is uh, those of you who know personally me. Uh, there was a fellow named Glenn who I was trying to get on NI level, who ran a local uh, luncheonette, who used to run a pizzeria, and eventually he folded and gave it up because he was a big gambler and he had a lot of problems. But he looked like Eddie Constantine, and to some extent, I mean, the stranger is better looking. Tony Anthony is much better looking than Glenn was, but it's, it, to some extent, that's there as well. Uh, and again, he was also Sicilian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my point of reference here. So you, the point being, though, that you don't really get gorgeous women in a stranger film. Here you've got some, uh, and two of them, as a matter of fact. Um, basically, it's the last quote-unquote stranger film. Uh, not really, but you know, nonetheless. Um, it never really got released. I mean, it, in the film, in, in the uh, whatever, they, they might have played it in a theater or two. I don't know. But I know it kind of vanished, and there was a problem with distribution. And in terms of ever getting, like, okay, a VHS release never happened. Uh, some gray market DVD release never happened. Uh, it was only very recently that they put it out on blue. And it is really – I really have no compunction on saying of his westerns. It is by far the best one that he did. Uh, this thing is crazy. Basically, now instead of having no plot, the plot is all over the place and insane. Uh, the guy – you talk about the horse. They're pussy dragging him around all the time. Okay, pussy drags him into basically a – 
it's like an abandoned town. You know, there's nobody there. It's like a ghost town kind of thing. Uh, and unfortunately, the horse dies after this, right? Uh, so he's stuck there. And somehow in town, there happens to be. So what you're saying is we have a, we, the movie begins with a dead pussy. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> uh, somehow in town, but it makes up for it because he finds more pussy right away. Uh, there's a gypsy in there, a fortune teller, and guess what? A princess. Uh, so these two uh, give him, like, one tells him his fortune, the other one gives him whatever. So, you know what? I need to go back to my kingdom. I'll give you a whole bunch of money to take me back there. So he says, okay, fine. And unfortunately, when he goes back there, he discovers that her kingdom is under assault by, guess what? We're talking about basically uh, Moorish, like um, Othello, you know, the Shakespeare uh, lovers among you. Uh, so we're talking about like Turkey, you know, that kind of an area. Uh, and you can also think in terms of Moorish, they're kind of dark, so think like Indian fellows, that kind of a thing. Uh, so there you are. What's get, what are they under attack by? Vikings! That's right. So there's these, you know, Conan the Barbarian types assaulting this woman's place. And they get some really... I remember he was talking about it in the extras on the Blu-ray. Uh, they get some unprecedented access to... I don't know. What, what is the big Spanish... Um, not the art gallery, but the uh, it's, it's like one of those religious, uh, like like one of those famous churches, cathedral type things, and they actually have like this big old art uh, deco type basement uh, with all these mosaics and things from the Byzantine era. Uh, gorgeous, you know, gold plate and everything else. Uh, you know, mosaic tile. Uh, he got access to this somehow. I don't know how the hell they did it. And apparently, nobody ever had access before or since, at least in terms of films. Um, beautiful, beautiful locations. And it gets a little bit like those of you who are video game people, a Tomb Raider game, or even more so, an Uncharted game, uh, where he goes into there and he's not really playing Tomb Raider, but you know things are. You know, falling apart around him, and he has to go from spot to spot, and it, he basically wends his way out of this uh, area uh, to do whatever he had to do here. And I think he had gotten trapped down there or something and discovered it by accident, you know, something like that. But it feels like one of those games. And then again, of course, you know, he gets out, and he's, of course he's got to defeat the barbarians, and the, the Moors are fighting him, and whatever the hell else. And there's some other bullshit about, like, oh, yeah, a, that's what it was. It was the lost treasure that was supposed to be in this place. Uh, because he never, they welched him. They wouldn't give him his money for bringing her there. Uh, it, the film is extremely confused as usual. But instead of having no plot, there's too much plot, and none of it makes sense. And it's juxtapositions that you would never think of unless you were smoking some kind of heavy drugs. Um, yeah, let's put a bunch of uh, you know black metal bands in the middle of a uh, a church that's in Paris, France, in 1866, and then we're going to throw in some you know U.S. military that are going to fight with zombie Vikings and throw a couple Nazis in there too. Like what? <laughs> what are you smoking? Uh, that's this kind of film, and yet visually it's stunning. Uh, and if you just turn your brain off and enjoy it, it's lots of fun. It's got all the usual stranger shit. You know, there's the usual torture scenes and all that crap, but this time it's more than justifiable. Uh, it's much better than Blind Man. It's certainly much better than the other two Vonzies. Uh, 
I enjoyed it a lot more than the first Stranger film. I can see people making arguments for that one being another good one. Uh, of his westerns, it really is the top. Uh, there's, he does another one after this, which is also pretty good in its own way, but not even close to this one. I This film is almost indescribable, but it's definite popcorn fluff, entertainment, outsider art, and just... Uh, you, you, you can jam a couple things together because you could take like an audience that's just looking for pure entertainment, like a summer blockbuster type audience. You can take a spaghetti western audience, and you could take the cult film audience that wants to get find some crazy piece of junk like uh, Miami Connection or Pieces or something to go and laugh at. And all of those people could be in the same room and enjoy this film just as much. So I love this film. So uh, what's your take on this one? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting movie. It's it's got all these elements. Uh, it sadly begins with the death of pussy, but you know, going on from there, uh, the horse, the <laughs> <laughs> going on from there though. Yeah, it's it's a strange movie, and it's got his his obsession with. Uh, it's not a three D movie, but it's got his obsession with. Yeah, you know, it's a pre Raiders kinda picture, yes. so it's obviously uh maybe influenced a little little bit by serials. I don't know, maybe somebody stole from him. Yeah. Possibly they stole from Tony Anthony and then they, Tony I didn't want to bet. Because Spielberg's no fucking genius, that's for sure. <laughs> well, what do we do a Spielberg show? So anyway. <laughs> That'll be a fun one. <laughs> anyway, no, it's a good movie. It's it's interesting. It's got too many elements for it to be a success, uh, theatrically. Um, hats off to Blue Underground for not only finding this movie, reviving it, and uh, doing a nice uh, special collection, uh, special edition, rather, uh, Blu-ray and DVD, and the thing is, though, uh, Blue Underground seems to have lost some of their advertising budget because now they're putting out stuff, and if, if Mondo Digital doesn't give it a good review, you don't even know it's out. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's true. Their, their promotional budget is like shit now. They don't even seem to have a Facebook presence. Um, I was shocked they put it up because, you know, I always complain about Lustig because he spent the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years re-releasing everything he gave to Anchor Bay on Blue Underground, re-releasing that again right. in a second-generation remaster, and then re-releasing it again to Blu-ray. It's like, how many times have you released the same fucking movie? I got it five times already, a jerk-off. Put out something new. But then he does put out something new, and nobody hears about it. Nobody's paying attention. It's like the boy that cried wolf. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not so much nobody's paying attention. I just think that they're they're not promoting you know they're 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 not uh, they're not going out there. You know, and uh, maybe somebody's got to make calls. You know, like hey, we yeah. have this. You know, <clears throat> you know, for all the odd bullshit that Vinegar Syndrome puts out, they're on the ball. You know, yes, they're 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 on top of their page. And because I actually talked to these guys, and they were much more. Down to earth, and I have to, dare I say it, more friendlier the second time I had lengthier conversations with them. So, um, I think they're more savvy to social network, and knowing that's where a huge percentage of their audience is. Yes, very true. Um, So, you know, they're smart. 
you know, Ballistic's been at this for a long time. He doesn't do cons anymore. That's another way to spread the word. Mm-hmm. You know, if he goes to cons, go around, shoot the shit. You know, I'll, I'll say this. Back when I first started Third Eye, I did a lot of interviews. weren't just directors and things like that, and actual you know, filmmakers. A lot of people I was going for, you know, people that were running video companies, and Lustig was one of the ones that just, you know, didn't even bother to respond. So this is the kind of guy you're talking about, you know, because I got people yeah. that, you know, today I, I won't even say because I don't like them personally. But nonetheless, they're like, yeah, sure, okay, I'll, I'll come on through an interview. It should be fun. And, you know, you get exposure from this. People, even years later, will go back and check out this interview with, you know, Person X from Label Y. And, you know, once extent or another, it gives you exposure. That's the whole idea besides just, you know, the entertainment value and sharing stories and whatever else. You know, if you don't want to do that, then you kind of lose out. You're shooting yourself in your own foot. So uh, I kind of knew he was like that just from that. (laughs) But now it's kind of showing through. Yeah, so so Get Mean is available. It is out. (laughs) Yes. Through Blue Underground, folks. And it's Uh, very worthwhile. Good, Very good film. Now we come on to the last two, yes. I believe, pictures. And, now, uh, these two were the ones that I was initially exposed to. Now, the first was through TV advertising, and I believe my father wanted to go because he was big on westerns and spaghetti westerns uh, all through my childhood. But uh, my mother hated damn things, and I don't think we ever bothered to go. Uh, at least if they went, they didn't go with me to see Coming At You. Uh, but I did see the next one. I enjoyed that one profusely. I have some memories about that. Uh, coming at you, finally, because they did something. I think I had heard recently that Tony had actually redone his 3D instead of the usual, the old process that they have with the red, green, over, under, whatever the hell it is. Uh, he had redone it into a more modern type 3D thing. Uh, so it's finally out because that was a big obstacle. They could never put these things out on VHS or never put them out on DVD. Or if they did, they came out looking wrong. They were all kind of red and fuzzy and, you know, just never worked. Uh, this one came out on Blu-ray recently. I have not seen it in 3D because I do not have the 3D uh, TV kind of experience. But I did see it in regular, you know, whatever you call it, uh, anamorphic widescreen. And it looked fine. There was definitely no issues with it. Um... Yeah, and you can always tell exactly when they're doing the usual thing, like shaking it. Oh, like here comes the snake and shooting in front of your face, and here's a, a pole poking at you. It's like, okay, this is cheesy 3D stuff, and there's a lot of it in there. So it must have been a real ruckus at the theater. It must have been lots of fun, especially in 1981 when nobody had done 3D really for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. You know, it was a long time since stuff like Revenge of the Creature, you know, those 50s 3D movies. That was the last time. Uh, so he makes this film as basically yet another Stranger film unofficially. Um, the guy, apparently he was supposed to be a bank robber or some shit, but his wife gets kidnapped. Uh, and so through the whole movie, he's trying to get her back. And of course, you know, in the meantime, she gets turned into a prostitute. And, you know, he, he actually has a sidekick once again. This time it's actually a priest instead of a preacher man. Um... It's fun in the respect of, okay, I enjoy Stranger Films, and yeah, this is definitely one of the better ones. It's up there with the original Stranger Film, and uh, to some extent, Get Mean uh, as one of the best ones of his uh, westerns. 
But once again, because it is a Tony Anthony more or less stranger film, you get a lot of torture, you get a lot of unpleasantness, like I just mentioned. His wife got kidnapped, his wife got prostituted. Uh, you know, there's not necessarily a happy ending here. Uh, he gets caught and tortured, and it's kind of grim at points. Uh, the torture, if anything, is rougher than the other Stranger films at points. So it's not a date movie. Uh, but for what it is and what it's trying to be, it's a pretty good spaghetti western. It's a very good 3D film. I imagine if you actually see it in 3D per se, and it holds up like it looks like it would, and like my experience with the next film that he did uh, in the theater did, then it must have been fantastic. And I can see why it had a brief... Uh, revival in 3D films, and you got things like you know Jaws 3D and Friday the 13th 3D and things like that. That was all because of coming at you and the film that comes after it. Uh, so, is there anything you want to say about this one? Oh yeah, yeah. I actually saw this in the theater um, in 3D. Whoa, it's true. <laughs> uh, oh, and Victoria Abril is the girl who's also another Spanish horror regular. Yeah, she's another pretty girl. Yummy. She's very yummy. Yes, she worked with uh, uh, Amaldovar. Uh, yes. Later on, after this, so time me up, time me down. Yes, yes. So she's definitely she became milfy here. She looks matureish, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but here she was I hot. Don't know where they, <laughs> in the eighty one. Here she was hot. Yeah, I don't know where that came from either, but I was making the connection. Yeah. Uh, so we know. Uh, we know. You're I did see. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. It's not always like that. Um, so. Uh, I did see this in the theater, and uh, the why would I go see this in the theater? It's a Western, and it's in 3D. There was a time when uh, I was seeing a lot of Corman-type crap, New World-type movies in the theater. Forbidden World, yes. Galaxy of Terror. You remember these type pictures? Yes, I do. They were great. And and there there were local grindhouses in Brooklyn uh, back in the 80s, and. Um, and uh, you would go, you know, check out crappy movies. And then all of a sudden there was a coming attraction trailer. Come on, that's true. And there was like, um, there were like uh, arrows, which had these like marshmallow type ends on them with flames. And yeah. they would come at the screen. It was like, hey, what is that? That looks really cheesy and fun. I remember so, the trailers <laughs> back then, yes. <laughs> so like coming out, you look like a lot of fun. And then there were big bosoms. So it's like, whoa, I can't see this. <laughs> David of Sleeves, ladies and gentlemen, you're getting all the obsessions in one night. <laughs> yes, David of Sleeves. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, I made the decision, you know what? I'm not going to see this in Brooklyn. I'm going to go to Manhattan and see this. Because I know the theaters are bigger and better. And even though we're talking 1981, 82, they were. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, there's one thing. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get around to actually talk about this and discuss this seriously. But, you know, people growing up, you had the hollow sound. You yes. had the big, echoey, brash, very troubly oh, bass. George Lucas Not- and THX and the Dolby Sound System was a boon. Because, yeah, you're right. The, the speakers and theaters used to be crap. Talking about in the late 70s, yeah. early 80s. Yeah. The projection used to be dull. Projection mm-hmm. used to be dull. Y'all, Dark there, were, there were times when, well, yes, when when I knew better, I was tempted to, and I actually probably do recall complaining now and then. I remember in Bensonhurst, I saw uh, 
uh, what was it? I, the jury, a pretty decent Armin Asante movie. And I complained, uh, where's the projectionist? Oh, he's, that's him right there. And the movie's still showing. I'm like, dude, you got to turn your gate up. And you got to, like, turn your, your projector on brighter because it looks horrible. You know? <laughs> uh, that's actually yeah, my memory of the 70s as a child. It was like, you know, you're watching every friggin' film was dark. And I'm talking about in the theaters. Forget about television or anywhere else. Uh, something was up with that where they really didn't know how or didn't care about projecting films to the kind of quality that you got used to later. Yeah. But on top of that, the audio was terrible. So, yep. uh, so anyway, so I decided, well, in Manhattan theaters, they were still, at the time, I'm not talking about the Deuce, I'm talking about the bigger theaters. Um, you knew you were going to be in a barn, but you also knew you did this, everything was going to be marginally better. So you're going to, if you're going to pay an extra dollar or two for 3D, hey, you might as well go do that. And I enjoyed the hell out of this thing. Uh, I had everything you described and more. I had a great cheesy uh, poster, uh, which I yes. had. I don't know what, I, what happened to it. Um, and it was fun. And it actually made money, lo and mm-hmm. behold. Yeah. This was the first Tony Anthony movie to become a freaking hit. It was a big um, hit, yeah. It was a big hit. It was because it had very exploit, exploitable elements. Exploitation level stuff was going on in here. Um, like I said, it actually so kicked it, off a 3D boom for a while there, a couple yeah. of years into the early 80s. So, And it came out through film, film Ways, which was like uh, this indie that wanted to be a major that was starting to fall apart, unfortunately, during his time period. Right. And, so... And, uh, you know, so yeah, you know, I, I remember, I remember, you know, he's the same snarky stranger character, and uh, totally a lot of fun. And what um, <laughs> I have to say, I love the hell out of his last picture. The next one yes, we're going to discuss. That's it. This is even with Get Mean. This is still my favorite of all Tony Anthony films, and it's actually the only one I saw in the theater. Uh, Treasure of the Four Crowns. This thing, I had mentioned it previously on other shows, I know it, uh, because whenever we, the concept of 3D comes up or whenever the concept or, or this, the topic of having a great theatrical experience comes up, Treasure of the Four Crowns is the first thing, first thing after all these years that pops into my head. That film was fucking amazing. Not because it's a great film. It's a fun little like Indiana Jones type knockoff. Um, probably came out at the same time or maybe a year after Indiana Jones. Playing in the same ballpark, but again, like we had mentioned earlier, parts of Get Mean, uh, you know, it, it's the same Tomb Raider, Uncharted sort of a thing, and that's probably where Spielberg stole the idea from. Uh, so, you know, playing back and forth, you could say, oh, well, it's an Indiana Jones knockoff. Well, yeah, but if Indiana Jones not, was possibly a knockoff of Get Mean or parts thereof, then, you know, who you blame here? Um, the film is basically one of those kind of deals. Uh, you know, one of these, um, what is that one? Dark of the Sun God and all those things that uh, Margarita was doing in oh, the days. Uh, yeah. David Warbeck, yeah. 
basically, this guy gets hired by I forget who, some like rich industrialist or something, and he's like, hey, yes. pull together, you know, your your uh, who you think are a bunch of pros, because uh, yes, he's you know, oh wait, I worked with this guy before, and he's got some old guy that's got like shaky hands now, but he used to be like the best safe cracker or whatever, and they work the out with this, the bad he, heart and the hot and the hot daughter. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, the hot daughter. You were correct, and the bad heart. Um, you know, all these people that he's worked with or that he knows or whatever. And of course he had to bring the daughter because the guy's old now. That was part of the thing. And of course, so you get a half ass love interest, even though nothing really goes on there, but you know, eye candy, uh, which is appreciated. And they go to raid this, um, it's like an old castle more or less. Yeah. Uh, and of course the place is filled with traps. It's, it's so, Indiana Jones was nowhere near this. I know it was playing in the same ballpark, but I really didn't think that it was that great. Uh, this is very, very Tomb Raider. It's very, very uncharted. It's it's looking forward to those sort of a things and backwards to serials, you know, Tarzan movies or whatever. Uh, you know, who the hell was sitting there back in you know, God knows, sixteen hundred, going putting all these elaborate traps together that would last hundreds of years to keep anybody away? And it's almost like uh, you know, the, the myth of Tutankhamun and all that crap. You know, the Valley of the Kings. Oh, yes, is when you walk into this part of the pyramid and push this lever, then a giant stone block would fall on your head after 10,000 years. Okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> same idea. There's a lot of this stuff going on. And in the course of his you know, breaking into – first they show him to break into something else before he even gets hired. Uh, but then later on with this whole adventure they're doing, you get elements of things like you know, uh, Grand Slam and Top Copy and those heist films in there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned those. They were on my mind. Yes, yeah. Yes. Uh, and even, you know, It Takes a Thief, the TV series, uh, same thing, especially in the earlier episodes, like the one with uh, – actually had a couple with her. Uh, with uh, – who's that? Not Jill St. John. Um, Susan St. James from uh, McMillan and Wife was in it with them. Uh, those kind of things, you know, elaborate heist type techniques to get to these, you know, four crowns with a, a skull with a jewel in it and whatever the hell else, you know, the, the usual deal. Um, but it's super elaborate and super silly and super comic booky. And of course, they've got other mercenaries after them and whatever the hell else. Uh, it's loads of fun. It is a really enjoyable film. Uh, and the bottom line was, I had seen it when it was still in 3D in the theater. And I could not freaking believe it because there were points where they would stick something out, like a snake would shoot at you or an arrow or uh, a pole. They had like a staff, and they would kind of wiggle it over. And the damn thing actually literally went over our heads. I actually looked up above my head because we're in the middle of the theater, and the damn thing actually went over my head. I was like, how is this possible? What kind of 3D is this guy using? You know, I mean, the, the theaters were not that advanced in 1983 that you know you could get something really fancy like that i don't understand it to this day uh you know i was of a younger age but i can tell you that i did experiment in a couple of ways and it, every time it worked i'm like wow this is the best fucking 3d film i've ever seen in my life and i've never seen anything close to it since <laughs> not even close uh i have seen it uh, recently, it came out on one of those. You know, the shout was putting out before they started doing the Blu-rays. They put out like those four packs with a bunch of movies on it, which are great because they, it enables you to skip most of their Blu-rays. But you know, uh, and they were dirt cheap; they're like five bucks and shit at the time. Uh, one of them had Treasure of the Four Crowns on, which is why I got it. Like, I've been looking for it for decades, and nobody could ever put it out, probably because of that Redshift thing I was talking about with 3D conversions. Um, 
it is a little bit shaky. There's a little bit of the redshift. But since Blue Underground was able to do this with Get Mean, well, maybe somebody can get on the stick and put Treasure of the Four Crowns out the same way because it needs to be cleaned up. It needs to get a Blu-ray presentation. And I don't have the capability even with the one that I have. Uh, uh, what the hell is the damn thing? Uh, coming at you. But nonetheless, they supposedly have a 3D side on it for those with the, you know 3D digital TVs. Uh, so why can't they do that with this one? It's the same company, the same guy, the same process. So uh, I urge anybody out there, whether it be Blue Underground, whether it be Tony Anthony himself, uh, you know, whoever wants to get on this, put out Treasure of Four Crowns in the same format as Get Mean. It is loads of fun, and it's really deserving of having at least a good print, if not a print that you can possibly do 3D with as well, as opposed to, you know, that dicey print that Shout put out, which was not cleaned up at all. It's just kind of a mess, uh, but still enjoyable just as the film itself. Uh, is there a lot of you know deep scripting and plot? No, hell no. They weren't with any of these films, and certainly not with this one. But it is my favorite of all of his films. It's still to this day my favorite you know theater going experience. It's still the best 3D film I've ever seen. And there was a lot of 3Ds in it, and a lot of like cheap gimmicks like you would expect. Oh wait, let me turn around and it'll point at you. You know, then the arm comes out over your head. Uh, you know, it's just a great, great film for, you know, what you look for in theater. Theater is not ever a great art like they tried to make it in the 70s. You know, the the Cahiers, the cinema crowd, the uh, the Woody Allens of the world, the Pauline Kales of the world, the Roger Eberts of the world who wanted to make every film important. Well, yeah, there are films that are trying to be that way, but most films are just crap. They're just shit entertainment. And that's why exploitation is just as important, if not more important, than something like a Spielberg movie. Uh, because the idea is you're supposed to have fun with it. This is done for entertainment, to make you forget your crappy life for a couple hours and have fun. Uh, and this film definitely, definitely fills that bill. Loads of fun. I really love it. And again, it, it deserves a better uh, print and release than what it's got right now. So... Your turn. Well, well, uh, I think I think uh, Spielberg probably took some ideas from coming at you, and like two years, three years later, uh, when they made this, which pre predated uh, the second and certainly the third Indiana Jones, much less the fourth. Um, is, yeah, Church of the Four Crowns is great. I also saw this in the theater uh, in Manhattan. On an old theater called the Archeo Cinerama, 47th mm-hmm. Street, I believe. It used to be one, and then they cut it into two. But uh, they actually were capable of showing a couple of 3D movies in that theater. Don't ask me why. Uh, Sir Andy Warhol's Dracula and Frankenstein there on re-release? At, at some really? Point. Yeah, in the mid-80s, they were re-releasing some uh, 3D movies again. And so... On the heels of the success of Coming At You and um, Treasure of the Four Crowns, suddenly old shit was coming out. House of Wax, I saw. Why in the world would I pay money to see House of Wax, a 1953 movie? Um, in color, of course, but uh, yep. in, a, in a movie theater in 1984, right? <laughs> Why would I do that? But, you know, I went there because of the curiosity factor. I was like, eh. Much more pleased with with uh, Andy Warhol's Dracula and you know Guts for Sarah and 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 Bush. But anyway, Treasure of the Four Crowns was a lot of fun. Um, I really liked it. He actually 
improved on the gimmicks that he had in Kamenachu. Yes. Uh, Kamenachu. Um, it, it's a fun movie. I like those things you name-checked. I like Tapakapi a lot. Actually, mm-hmm. I don't discuss it much, but I really, really like a good heist movie. I yeah, really they're do. great. Even Crap uh, Like Ocean's Eleven, Grand? the original, is, is watchable just because it yeah. is a heist movie. I mean, it gets frustrating because of Sammy and all them screwing it up. But, you know, nonetheless, uh, you get something like Grand Slam or, or Tough Copy. It's like, wow, this is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Grand Slam. Uh, they, 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 they came from Rio. Uh, what's that thing with uh, Gary Lockwood? Yes. Maiden, uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Some of them were they real. Came to rob, <laughs> uh, they came to rob Las Vegas. That's right. They came to Rob Las Vegas. I think that was the title. There's a lot of pictures out there like that. And uh, I like heist movies. And though this is not a heist movie, it's certainly in that vein. And the idea that we're dealing with a cult, because cults are big back then. Mm-hmm. You, know, the, the, you know, this is way, way post-Manson, but... The, yeah, but the, this is know, when South- everybody was a Harry Christian. You could actually find them in the airports. Oh, and no, there was so much all these... Yeah, but there was all these kids that went away, that ran away from home to join various cults. Yes. And it wasn't just there like the, nowadays where you get like the Korean cults or cult. whatever. There yes. The spaceship cult. Yep. The spaceship cult was around Heaven's that time. Heaven's kind of shit. I mean, David yeah, Koresh, I mean, these the, kind of things. And it was very the Japanese, they were called all Ram or something like that. And then they wound yep. up like gassing themselves to death after they tried to fit in. Oh, the Am Shinriko. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, that's kind of shit going on. Um, so, so these these guys go to the castle and they're dealing with a cult, and the guy's pretty good as a villain, and um, you know it's negligible the kind of romance going on because by now Tony Anthony's visibly getting older and he's yeah. more robust, but you know it's fine we buy it. Um, I like that he puts together this ragtag group of people. Uh, uh, was one of those guys Salvatore Bacari? Uh, I don't see him listed, but it's very possible. Francisco Rabal was in it. That's a name. Uh, yeah, but I do not see Bakari there. was in uh, The Beast in Heat. You know, that's yes. what I'm thinking of. That's why and, I had a look. He might, <laughs> yeah, he might be in this. It's possible. He might be one of those guys. Because he was very athletic. He was, you know, one of those guys. Um, so, it's a great movie. It's a fun movie. The 3D is magnificent, and which brings me to something in the 90s, a, I guess, some entrepreneur, entrepreneur was trying to come up with a gimmick, and they were trying, there was a Friday the 13th that was 3D, do you remember this? Yeah, and Friday the 13th was, uh, Part 3, 3D, and you also had the Jaws yeah. 3D, and there was a couple of them, about five films. There were like five films. There were these two, and Andy Warhol. So somebody was trying Halloween to Halloween 3D, I think. Oh, no, no, that wasn't. A VHS system where you would have to wear these glasses that flickered. They were very heavy goggles. So back in the days when I'm still Mr. Gray Market Video, um, some guy said, well, I'll trade you X amount of movies for the system. I'm like, what? What is this? What are you talking about? So he gave me a shitload of movies and the system, which is fine, but it hurt your eyes because it was like a flick. It was a flicker thing. It was based on a flicker thing. Right. So it was like an, uh, uh, this box that hooked up to your VCR. And so 
it was like an adaption of what 3D would work like. Right. So it, it just <clears throat> it just didn't work. So here we are today, and you mentioned this before. There are 3D televisions. So um, they really have to take advantage of the 3D 3D technology that's out there now. I don't have personally a 3D TV, but right. um, there are a lot of cool 3D movies, and so somebody should take advantage of this technology. Now, to piggyback on something you said, Get Me got a great disc release. Um, Come at you can get to, to get do much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Treasure of the Four Crowns, come on, Shout Factory. You put it on, you put on a release of four other movies. The only other one on there worth any note was the uh, well, Who Dares Wins. I think that's in that package. Yeah. I, I thought there was nothing else of note on it. <laughs> and don't forget, like I mentioned, it's shaky at points. You can see the sprocket damage. And it's red-shifted, just like a usual 3D-type thing. It's like that, that blurriness. I'm like, well, you know, if they can clean up these other films, they can clean up coming at you, they can, you know, get, get mean out here, why the hell can't you do it with this? It's the same process. You know, fix it yeah, up. Put it yeah. out there. You got the rights. Go for it. So, oh, yeah, it needs yeah, a better release. Yeah. Sure. And uh, I oh, think and it deserves it. Mm. I didn't mention it because it's not that memorable a score in my head, but uh, Morricone even did the soundtrack on this one. So there's a lot of uh, cult whatever to this. Um, you know, there are people in it, like I mentioned Francisco Robal. You think that, uh, uh, what's his name, is in it? Salvatore Beccaro. I mean, there are reasons to release this. Plus, you know, the Tony Anthony films are all kind of popular right now. They're all in release. I mean, uh, even the... Who are those people that put out the uh, the Warner Archives put out a bunch of uh, the Stranger films that way, um, like those MLD type things? And I'm sure because it seems like Shot Factory buys out every freaking MLD they put out and puts it out on a Blu-ray a couple years later. So you know I'm sure those are going to be coming out. They put these out. Come on, put this film out. It needs to be cleaned up. I mean I'm glad it's out at all because at least I got to see it again. But you know at this point it kind of looks like shit. It deserves much better. Um, so that's really it, because after this, he stopped making films. I'm not sure why. I mean, it was just because he was getting older. Uh, he did make money on those two 3D films for sure. He actually did pretty well on them, as I understand. Uh, and eventually, even though it took forever, some of these other films that weren't released for a while got some sort of release, like Blind Man. And, of course, uh, uh, Get Mean eventually just got the uh, release here on DVD or Blu-ray. And in the meantime, he did a couple of production jobs again, but nothing really of note. Uh, he did uh, Zalman King's Wild Orchid, uh, which you know had Jackie Bissett and Mickey Rourke in it. Um, something called Honeymoon Academy and some TV movie called The Hour for the Dead. But that's really it. I mean, he just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Who knows if he just retired or if he's you know maybe working at Delhi. Maybe that was maybe he's Glenn. <laughs> maybe that's what happened. <laughs> I was right about that before, uh, but that's basically it uh, for what I had to say on Tony Anthony. So, anything else you wanted to say about him? No, no, it was it was certainly uh, an interesting individual. Made definitely outside. Well, he was an outsider filmmaker. Uh, yeah, an outsider actor. And, and with these uh, last three or four pictures of his, which he obviously, from what we gather here and spearhead um, he was definitely something to take notice of why he stopped I don't know 
Uh, it could be a lot of things. Again, a lot of things we don't know about. Um, but well, yeah, remember, he certainly he was, made this. He was producing hmm. these films, so you know how many of them really not getting released? You know, hit the budget. Okay, yeah, those two 3D films did really well for him, but you know how many others flopped. And how much frustration is involved in, okay, I'm going to write this film, I'm going to star it, I'm going to produce it, and nobody even gets to see the fucking thing. So, you know, that could all add up, but who knows? There could be a well, lot of things. You know, as, as we discussed earlier, too, I'm sure the Stranger in Japan thing really, really burned him. I mean, things in the lane in the vault for five, six years. Yep. The longest any of his movies. And it's not because it's a great fucking movie, because it was mishandled. And then at that point, it comes out as exploitation fodder, because... Yeah, that's what's popular at the time. And did luckily, get, we didn't even get a release, or was it just because? I mean, obviously, it never got a home video release until just recently. But did it no, even go, hit the theaters? Get a theatrical. I did. I think it mean to get a theatrical, but uh, you know, anything of note, I don't really think so. Yeah, I don't think it did that well for him. So there, there's a lot of disappointments, and I'm actually surprised that he stuck it out to do the 3D movies, which again did really well, but. You know, I, I could see the frustration building up there. So who knows? And again, it could be anything. It could be health issues. It could be drugs. Who the hell knows what happens in people's lives? Uh, maybe he got married and moved away. Who knows? You know, people have lives. This is the real world. It's not all just about movies. Well, and he, he was in Brooklyn recently. He was in Brooklyn recently. There was a screening of something, and uh, there was a theater in Brooklyn somewhere. I don't know. I used to live in Brooklyn. There were no fucking theaters that go to see anything cool. But apparently, once I moved out of Brooklyn, there was, like, theaters somewhere. I don't know where. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the gentrified, it's all hipsters. <laughs> See, there you go. Anyway, in the past few months, Tony Anthony has been in Brooklyn. It might have been Get Mean. Uh, it's possible it was. And um, he was there at a screening, and he did a Q&A. Not done by me. <sighs> anyway, um, so he's still around. Um Love to talk to this guy one day. Maybe I'll get the chance. You never know. He's 78 now, so we got to do it soon. <laughs> so, um, so that's our Tony Anthony show. I liked it. It was different. I hope you guys were entertained listening to it. And, you know, if you go into a theater in Brooklyn, you know, count how many people don't have beards <laughs> and are over 78 pounds. <laughs> that's all I can picture is all these hipster kids there. Uh, so next week we're doing next week uh, we are wow so we're already doing this one huh alright so set up at the turn of the century the Nakatsu Corporation halted production during the war years only to return with the vengeance of the mid 50s for a long run of genre defining cinema from the Sun Tribe films of a new more free spirited youth culture to a strong or somewhat belated Japanese take on film noir through their famed borderless action films, Nakatsu was the go-to company for such internationally faded directors as Keiichi Ozawa, Yasuharu Yasube, Shusei Sone, Koryoshi Kurohara, and the much-beloved Seijun Suzuki. So introducing the world to such Asian screen icons as Akira Kobayashi, Joshi Shido, Yujiro Ishihara, and Meiko Kaji, Nakatsu would eventually leave their gangster films, action, and even pinky violence epics behind in favor of a more cost-effective and surprisingly voluminous exclusive focus on, quote, pink film with stars like Naomi Kani, uh-huh. Ron Masaki, and Junko Mabuki in tow. So join us next week as we speak to the earlier end of the Nakatsu history as we talk Sun Tribe, Nakatsu Noir, Borderless Action, and Seijun Suzuki, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Uh, so anything else you want to mention before we close on out? 
No, no, that's it. We hope you enjoyed the show, and you know what, what Nikato films I'm going to be discussing next week. So, um, <laughs> yeah, even if we have time, there's a lot of them. Um, so, uh, thank you for listening as always, <laughs> and we'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. Uh, you distract me with that one. All right, so here we go. <laughs> thank you for listening to us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little discussion on Tony Anthony and his films. Uh, next week, join us as we talk uh, in the concert part one. So, try more portals action. And Station Suzuki. Uh, if you're a filmmaker or musician, like to join us out here, drop us a line at our WordPress site, uh, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or at weirdscenes1, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1. Weirdscenes are the gold mine brought to you by the Big Pop Online Network. I'm Black certain look at the headlines from politics to pop culture from the corporate to the individual every monday at 6 p.m eastern we take a not so serious look at the serious issues of the day whether it's politics economics social issues music or old movies and tv shows we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all hell you've got to have a sense of humor about life just look at the headlines so join me matt g and me doc savage Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs>